Welcome back to the Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm Dave Rome, and this week we're diving into the world of custom bikes with Bryce Gracie from Number 22 Bicycle Company. Here, we touch on a number of topics, including geometry concepts, custom bike demand, travel bikes, and of course, we discuss Number 22's latest offerings that were just revealed over the weekend at the Philly Bike Expo. These latest offerings help to produce some rather spectacular machines, and as a result, Number 22 walked away with the show's People's Choice Award, far from the company's first award at such shows. Before we dive into that conversation, you may have noticed that we didn't have an episode last week. Truthfully, we recorded one. It was a long one, and longtime industry member Jeff Schneider from Kdex had even joined James and Zach at the Boulder Grappetto for a twist on the group show theme. Unfortunately, a room of mechanics and tech editors couldn't work out the tech, and so audio issues stopped us from airing that episode. Hopefully, we can get Jeff back onto the podcast in the near future. Okay, back to the present. All right, Bryce, thanks for joining the Nerd Alert podcast today. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. We, uh, we definitely follow you guys, so it's nice to be uh, <laughs> the mouth instead of the ears for once, yeah. Well, love what you do, but for those that aren't familiar, what is Number 22? Number 22 is a titanium uh, bicycle company that's based in upstate uh, New York. And we've been doing this, uh, the company was founded in 2012, so technically this is our 10th year anniversary. And we've had our own production facility up and running since uh, 2014 in Johnstown. Okay, all right. And I believe the founding of number 22 is slightly different to the usual story of a lot of uh, custom brands where apprentices may come through a different brand or a different maker and then start their own. What's your background? Right. Yeah. So this was started um, by myself and my partner, Mike Smith, up in Toronto, Canada. Um, I'm from an architectural background and Mike comes from a business and law background, but also used to wrench in shops for years when he... Uh, kind of was made to get a job in a shop when he was racing mountain bikes and his parents wanted him to see how expensive his hobby was. So they made him work for his parts, I guess. Um, yeah, we started in 2012, just basically out of a, a passion for cycling. Um, Mike was about to start a job at a law firm at that time after doing his articling. I was working as an architect, as I mentioned, and I needed a new bike to sort of get around. So I decided to build something up out of titanium. I was riding fixed gear at the time, and I wanted something that would withstand the weather here and <clears throat> all the corrosion that comes with the salt they put on the streets in the winter. And so I thought back to my first days of road riding back in the late 90s that titanium would be a great material for that. So designed a track frame, had it built overseas, and got back on the material. I was like, oh, there's something to this started extolling the virtues to Mike, who was about to, instead of taking that law, law job, ride uh, from the furthest west coast to the furthest east coast of Canada, they needed a frame for it. So we designed something up for him, uh, had that made, and he rode that cross country and came back and said, you know, we have to do something with this material. So that's essentially how the company got started. Interesting. So those first few bikes were not actually, they weren't made locally for you guys. Mm -hmm. They they were outsourced design, uh, outsourced manufacturing. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. So I yeah. guess okay. took sort of an architectural pedagogy and, you know, designed them and then had somebody else take care of the construction. They were pretty good. Um, but 
not maybe to the aspiration that we were looking for. So then we moved to working with a company out of Tennessee, which most people would know. Um, and then mm-hmm. that, uh, we wanted to take it to the next step. We found that the people that were formerly of uh, Serata were operating as a new business and just started taking some contract frameworking on. So we were first in the door for that. Uh, we went down and met the guys. They presented us with two prototypes, which were spectacular. Um, so we put down some money for a run of bikes and then the factory was shuttered pretty much the next week. Uh, the <laughs> people that had it at the time, an investment banker, another group, uh, closed it. So oh, no. we were out of money and needed bikes and the key guys from that team, uh, you know, they needed, they needed work. So we didn't want to let that team fall apart. So we joined forces with them, uh, and started, uh, our own manufacturing facility in 2014 in a town called Johnstown, which is based in upstate New York. Okay. And number 22, where did that name come from? Uh, it's a periodic number of titanium. So of course, you know, we're pretty, pretty sold on the materials. So we thought <laughs> yeah. we'd, uh, yeah, we'd stick with that. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's sort of the, that in a nutshell, how we got started. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, things seem to be going pretty well for you. You've uh, won a few awards in recent years when there were uh, custom bike shows on the last the last NABs for I think you got was it best in show? Am I am I imagining that or is it? Yeah, no, that was uh, we were really blown away with that reception. I think we got best in show, best Campagnolo build, best Soka integration. Uh, what else? Ribbons for welding and road bike. I think. Something like that, yeah. So it's a good way to go out with a bang, I guess, before everything shut down. Yeah. Well, speaking of best Silka uh, integration, that uh, probably leads us pretty naturally onto uh, what uh, what you've been working on. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, the Philly Bike Shows just just happened, and probably had a pretty busy weekend talking about some new things. Mm-hmm, uh, definitely. What are what are these new things? Yeah, so I think like our, from the outset of our business, we've tried to make bikes that could stand toe to toe with carbon bikes on the shop floor with the same bells and whistles. You know, we kind of carry a mantra that you know our bikes are <clears throat> performance oriented, but you know, artists and built. So, um, you know, we were one of the first companies to use flat mount brakes and actually developed our own flat mount forks before they were available by Envy, etc. And so we've always been looking to sort of honing our product and really making it something distinct and unique. So we had our eye on 3D printing for a while. Um, and we started integrating that into our frames uh, by working with the team at Silka, who are doing you know some pretty interesting things in that space too. So uh, yeah. the first foray into that was with our seat mass topper on our integrated seat pipe spikes. We used to make that out of casting, which is also not too commonly used, um, but we saw some advantages of being able to use 3D printing for that. Um, and that was quite successful. Uh, so then we moved into revamping our dropouts um, and doing that in 3D printing as well, which allows us to make it a lot more seamless um, visually, but also through fabrication. There's a lot less... Uh, mitering and uh, welding required around those really uh, tolerant sensitive junctions where heat inevitably causes you issues no matter how good your welders are and are some of the best in the business it's always problematic and there's a lot of rework etc 
So functionally, that was a really great space to use that uh, technology. And then the next step was, I guess, kind of going back to our idea of keeping um, keeping up with the carbon bikes. Uh, full integration is something that we wanted to do. We wanted to do it in the way we do most things, where we kind of really take it under um, our own umbrella and develop something that's you know, unique for us. So we developed a fully internal cable system um, that's comprised of a 3D printed stem uh, and a machined uh, titanium headset to go along with that uh, right down to the spacers, which are also 3D or uh, machined titanium. It looks pretty intricate. Uh, I guess mm. you're using a standard handlebar on the front, but your own stem, is that correct? <clears throat> That's right. Yes. For now, we're using um, any integrated bar will uh, will work with the setup. We mm -hmm. are looking at maybe doing something for ourselves as the next step of that. Um, but for now, to get it rolled out, we're yeah uh, working with any any standard carbon bar that has an internal uh, integration in it. Okay. So yeah, we've got a few 3D printed titanium components here, uh, additive manufacturing. Uh, mm -hmm. Silka recently, I mean, it's a fairly recent um, venture for Silka to get into that space. I mean, they've they've invested pretty heavily in the, the manufacturing capability to do that. Mm -hmm. Are you their first uh, frame partner in that space or are they doing stuff for other people? I believe they are uh, for other okay. people. Uh, we yeah. don't really poke our nose too much into that, but I believe they they are doing some some other work. Mm -hmm. I'd like to think um, what we're doing with them at this point is probably um, you know the the closest partnership in the in terms of the number of uh, projects that they or parts that they're making for us and a couple other things that we're kind of working on behind the curtains with them as well. Um, but I do believe they are they're doing work for others as well. Interesting and. I mean, you mentioned the the benefits of the dropouts that you're kind of able to create the shape that that's basically ready to be welded into the frame, mm -hmm. you know, maybe mm -hmm. maybe cleaned up a little bit, but and then mm -hmm. and then welded to some tubes. Uh, what are the advantages of like the of using a 3D printed stem? Why why did you go that way? Mm -hmm. Well, I think what we wanted to do is formally to be pretty unrestricted, and obviously 3D um, printing allows you to do that. Um, there's also some interesting technology, like what's happening in the stem is a almost a lattice that's derived um, through a program that Silka use, which creates this internal structure uh, that's based on the load conditions that the part will be under. Um, so that allows us to do this in a pretty lightweight with this internal support. So I think about 110 uh, millimeter length. We're coming in right around 170, 180 grams, which is pretty much on par, say, for NMB's um, Aero integrated stem as well. Um, and it also allows us to do some pretty interesting things, like we actually have an internal cable passage through the center of that lattice work, which makes um, the installation of the cables seamless, the transition through that bend um, is controlled by us, there's no rattling, etc. And it allows us also to adapt, print different sizes, uh, different angles as we need to off the hop. Whereas if we were using something like casting, for instance, for that stem, you know, every every cast piece requires um, its own mold, um, minimum of a hundred and some at best uh, castings per mold, etc. Uh, so this allows us to really dial things in, uh, control the lengths, the angles, etc. And take advantage of the, the lighter weight that this uh, technology allows. 
Yeah, interesting. Okay. And are you, I mean, some other companies, uh, especially out of uh, out of Australia, closer to my house, is uh, mm-hmm. using that technology to, I guess, create customized components per for each bike. Is that is that a path you've taken, or are you sort of using more set um, set sizes with these stems? For now, we're we we're just as we roll them out. Uh, sticking with a sort of conventional uh, negative six stem and yep. lengths from 80 to 120. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then that'll definitely definitely open the option for changing up angles and lengths as needed. Um, you know, it's essentially just uh, a few modifications to a model. And then, you know, for the printer, it's really, it takes no... Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, the printer doesn't care. It's printing. Yeah. It doesn't care if it's a zero, yeah. negative 10, whatever. Yeah. So uh, it does definitely open the option for doing more custom stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I were to have one of these stems in my hand, took a hacksaw down the middle of it, what would the, mm. the lattice, I mean, that would be a shame to do, but what would the lattice inside look like? Uh, it's, you know, I think we have a couple of things up on our Instagram post, right? Our Instagram page right now where we're showing the internals of a dropout as well as one of our toppers. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a few friends that are in the medical industry keep telling me how much it looks like uh, the inside of bone, especially um, birds, bone structures, how this almost looks like it's, you know, it's derived and shows essentially true to what it's doing. It almost shows how it's responding to uh, load paths, et cetera. So okay. it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's definitely nothing else. You won't see anything else like that in a carbon stem or an alloy, et cetera. It's pretty yeah. wild. And actually at the Philly show, we have uh, a cross section of that stem yeah. uh, that we were showing people, which uh, shows that those innards, which is pretty, pretty amazing. So we'll put some pictures up of them out on our social as well. If people want to pop over and take a look yeah. after, we'll get those up. Yeah, it kind of like it's like a flowy shape if um i'd mm-hmm. say like you know normally with a i think if if people have got a, a picture in their mind of a, a lattice from say bastion um mm-hmm. they use a very much like a a hex based lattice very close uh mm-hmm. very very little airspace in between their lattice whereas yours is right. um yeah much more of a like an organic shape it's it's quite exactly cool yeah. yeah as opposed to stereometric it is far more of an organic Direct shape. I think that's where you know people keep saying like the doctors like this looks like bone. This looks like an organic response mm. to the organic response to the purpose of this part, which is pretty cool. That the technology is you know as it gets further advanced, it becomes even more sort of primary in that sense. From you know these <laughs> did you did you play it all? Systems. Did you play it all with keeping that lattice like maybe like a window into it, or is are there there compromises yeah. on that? We thought about that. You can definitely yeah. peek it through the center of the. Uh, through the center of the stem and your bars off, but we were worried about it would turn into a whistle or you know, <laughs> getting the gunk out of that can be pretty tricky if it got in yeah. there. So uh, yeah. yeah, it would be pretty cool, but you know, maybe we'll find a way to, to, to show a bit of that in the future. But uh, for now we kept it clean uh, in order to keep it uh, yeah, whistle free and gunk free. Interesting. I'm, I'm keen to talk a bit more about this, uh, this front end because it's, it's kind of a controversial topic. I mean, we mm-hmm. on on this podcast we whinge about integrated systems a lot and complain mm-hmm. about system, you know, good versus bad. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, the the sort of tunneling I've I get all the guides you've got in that stem. Um, still have to cut the brake hose. I imagine if you need to remove or replace the stem, you still need to uh, pull the hose out. But at least you're not having to go fishing. It sounds like it'll just go exactly where you want it to. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you have previously as a company created some couplers for for brakes um uh-huh. probably uh-huh. the only bike manufacturer to have done that um i mean there's brake manufacturers that have done it but um is that something you considered to to work in this frame or is it is that a completely separate demand and product yeah there's something we kind of thought about um yeah we call that the brake break and we're on our second version of that now which is a lot more svelte than the first so there is talk of potentially integrating something like that in a in a revision um it's the question is like how you could actually get at it, the amount of slack mm-hmm. you would need to build into the system, uh, yep. even if it is small enough to kind of pass through um, finding the room uh, to keep things functional with enough slack that you can get at this coupler and decouple it um, wasn't so straightforward. Uh, so that is something we're looking at. You know, one way we did sort of look at some adjustability, uh, the way we've designed the stem, there is no uh, spacer stack above it. So um, any space or adjustment is happening below. And one thing we couldn't figure out is why on a lot of other systems, the cable pass-through on the spacers is closed. So even to change or remove a spacer, you're looking at, you know, detaching your brake line if you want to drop your, drop your system a bit, um, your stack out a bit. So what we did is we actually, and maybe this is a response to material because most of the spacers are made out of plastic. So they, maybe they deform if there's a gap there, but we've actually cut away um, uh, a window, let's call it, in that uh, pass-through. So you can actually slide the spacers off without having to detach your brake cables. So you can pop your stem off enough to get to a, um, you know, a fork guide on that to cut it down, but you don't have to detach all your hoses, et cetera, to make a, uh, uh, a drop in the stack. Gotcha. Okay. Do you have to cut the steerer if you do drop a spacer? Uh, cut the steer tube with the fork. Yes, you would yeah, need okay. to trim. We have a bit of room built into that, but if you make yeah. any sort of significant anything, let's say, I don't know, like above five, you would probably you'd chop it down. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So we've we've spoken about the stem. Uh, then you've got your headset spaces in in themselves are probably something that um, I would normally receive a press release for just for that part. Looking at how intricate right. it is, can you talk about how those are made? <laughs> Yeah, so those are actually uh, made out of a solid billet of titanium that's then uh, CNC'd and then uh, wire cut, EDM wire cut to create the uh, connection between them. So like on most of the spacers on other systems like this where they sort of interlock, uh, these do that, but it's, you know, we geeked out when we got our first ones, we could actually like kind of press it together and the tolerance was so tight that we could just hold it in air and would hold itself together. yeah, I mean, even that part alone, you know, was obviously an incredible expense over doing sort of a cast mold in plastic. Yeah. Uh, but it's, you know, they're little gems in themselves. So, you know, it's the system's only as nice as the worst part of it, right? So sure. uh, yeah. we didn't even skip out there. Yeah. So so you get the shape with by CNCing and then the wire mm-hmm. cutting actually splits them. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. yeah so okay. that way they, they made up perfectly it's because you try to machine each side independently there's mm-hmm. obviously a tolerance in a part and how that plays out during cnc'ing is you know it's never going to be always the same so the two halves could have slightly different tolerance um hiccups let's call them at that junction uh and then that would lead it to not fitting as tight same thing on the sort of inline coupler system that we do which um you know is, essentially is done in the same way it's machined as one piece and then EDM cut. So the two pieces then like 
lock in without you know barely even being able to see the scene. Interesting. Is that a is that a capability you have in house, or is that something you outsource with the the no. water cutting? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, we outsource that. Yeah, uh, pretty we, sophisticated. We, we should, yeah, yeah, super. Yeah, yeah super, same thing with the uh, you know the uh, Silka's super fancy three D printing machines. We mm. if there's something we want to get done to a, a quality that we just don't have the equipment in house for, then we'll outsource with specific people that we you know come to trust in the in the quality of their of their work. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Uh, and then below that, you've got, uh, I guess, a pretty unique headset. Uh, am I am I right in thinking it's a two inch bearing at the top? Is that did I read That's that right? right? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's yeah, it's an oversized bearing. I think 50, 52, 52. So the lower is um, a fifty two, and the upper is the same. Uh, okay. as so as you would run on a one and a half inch tapered fork, it's okay. that bearing yeah. is run top and bottom. Yeah. That, okay. All right. So yeah. So nothing, nothing too um, obscure there. Um, mm-hmm. But you've got your own sort of top cap assembly. Um, mm-hmm. There was mention of it using uh, the token design. Can you explain what that is? Sure. Yeah, we've partnered with them. I think uh, you'll see other people like NV are yeah. using a similar system as well. So uh, the dust cap uh, is made out of CNC machined titanium as well. Uh, and then we work with the uh, token to supply the bearings and sort of a compression piece that similar that you'd find, <clears throat> excuse me, on the NV bike that it's uh, the cable guide and works to sort of, you know, lock in the system there. So it has a couple of cable pass-throughs. Um, that's the really the only components uh, of theirs that we're utilizing in the assembly, uh, but their bearings and then that, that guide through. And they've been awesome to work with on that. Yeah. Cool. What other systems did you try out, and what I guess what features made you settle on that token one? Mm-hmm. Um, it seemed to be um, tried and tested. Um, we liked the way it worked when we checked it out functionally compared to some of the others. Um, they were willing to partner with us in the sort of scale and um, quantities that we needed to. Uh, we're super helpful with technical information as we needed as we were developing our system. Um, so for just needing those few parts, it seemed to be the best system to, to proceed with. Interesting. Okay. And then, uh, holding that, uh, holding, doing the holding job, I guess, uh, that, that headset, uh, within it's the fork, uh, mm-hmm. that forks your own. That's right. Yeah. yeah. We started our own forks quite a while ago. I think I just briefly mentioned at the outset that, you know, when flat mount was coming, uh, to become the norm on carbon bikes, et cetera. You know, that wasn't quite available for aftermarket. So we really wanted that. So we ended up, you know, looking for manufacturers to work with to produce forks for us. And we've done that over, I think we're on our third or fourth generation now. So we call that company number six composites. So we've developed these new forks, a gravel fork and a road disc fork that uh, come in both external and internal cable systems. Um, nice big tire clearance. Uh, I think the road disc can clear around a 38, the gravel around, uh, uh, 45 plus 700, um, and a nice low axle to crown. We really like sort of more of a performance oriented bent on our front end. So, uh, you're getting sort of upper edge clearance on what's available for forks, but at like a nice low stack height. Um, we even worked a little 3D printing into that as well. It was a, a, a countersunk titanium nameplate on the fork blade on the drive side. It's 
that's a way of adding a sort of a more in, integral branding as opposed to just uh, a decal yeah. or some paint. Yeah. Interesting. So that's something we didn't discuss is that uh, you've got, I guess, two different forks. You've got a gravel fork, a road fork. Uh, mm-hmm. the, this, these integrated things we're talking about, what's a, how can a customer order them? Is that, is it just on a road bike or is it available on multiple different styles of bike? Yeah, we can make it an option on all of our all of our okay. disc bikes, so both gravel and road. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, and then that number number six composites is that? Are you making other things there, or is it just the forks for the, for now? Yeah, just just forks for now. Uh, we've actually been supplying to a lot of other builders, uh, which is pretty awesome. Um, because the aftermarket options are sort of limited, and you know we've always liked to work with other small builders. Um, we've worked pretty closely with some of them over the years and we kind of figure it's all of us little guys against the big guy at the end of the day. So any help and support we can give to other builders, we're happy to do so. Yeah. And, uh, are those builders, I guess, are they putting the fork under their own name or are they, are they using your name when they, when they equip that fork? Yeah, I think on the last models, um, which didn't have this sort of insignia on the side, they were just painting them up in whatever scheme. Uh, okay. In this case, now with that side panel, uh, we sell them with a uh, 3D printed, non-titanium, but a 3D printed number six badge, or we can work with them to do a, uh, a custom 3D printed titanium badge, which we're doing with uh, a few companies like Moro over there in Australia. Uh, okay, yep. We're great guys to work with. Yeah. Uh, domestically, uh, people like Firefly, we've had a good relationship with them. So yeah, number of builders. Okay, Firefly is not exactly a a small a small builder. Like Mora is pretty pretty small. They're not doing a huge number mm-hmm. of frames, but Firefly is definitely ticking through them. So that's uh it's pretty cool to see that sort of support. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's a great. Uh, I think it's a great uh, confirmation if a company like those two are picking the mm. forks on to use, given the other options that are out there. Mm-hmm. For sure. And and where are those forks being manufactured? Is that is that overseas or is that domestically for you? That's overseas, yeah. Yeah, okay. And I think it's worth mentioning because you won't, but uh, so is Envy. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sometimes that needs a reminder, but uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know of anyone of scale domestically that's, yeah. uh, that's, that's working uh, to do anything aftermarket. I think maybe most companies that aren't making their own forks in-house are just kind of keeping up with their own requirements, it seems. Yeah. And, not looking yeah. into that third-party stuff. Yeah, sending it to the expert manufacturers then. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, let's uh, talk a bit about uh, geometry. I mean, these bikes fully custom. Is that, that sort of what you, you play with? Mm-hmm. So we've developed our own, let's call it a geometry philosophy for each model. Okay how we think a road bike should um, perform or what that looks like, whether it's more of an all-road bike or a race bike. Um, same thing with the gravel, uh, what we think makes a nice riding all-day gravel bike versus you know, on the Drifter versus the Drifter X, which is supposed to be more of a, a racier gravel bike. So when we look to, we have those in stock sizes from 50 to 60, uh, sorry, 48 to 60 at this point now. And then if somebody's looking for custom geometry, then usually what we do is try to work with their fit points um, and fit them within that design philosophy um, on the bike. Yeah. So Scott Hawk, who's our director of operations, is also our head frame designer. And you know, he worked at Serata designing thousands of bikes uh, before that time. So he really knows his stuff. So 
uh, we make sure somebody gives us our measurements for getting them on a bike that's going to fit them well, but is also going to not be compromised and it's, uh, and it's performance is going to, mm-hmm. uh, perform as well. Yeah. Interesting. Let's talk a bit about that, um, that geometry. So what's, what's your best selling gravel bike? Is it the. I would say it's still the drifter. The yeah. Drifter. Which is okay. sort of a more of our all road gravel bike. Yeah. Um, it's, <laughs> It's definitely, yeah, it's definitely be taken over. So, you know, as gravel has with the industry as a whole, um, that's definitely been our largest growing segment. Interesting. Okay. So the geometry on that, uh, am I right in thinking you're using a single fork rake? Uh, uh, on the right? gravel bike, that's right. Yeah, we yeah. use a 50 millimeter offset bike. Yeah. Okay. So we see some brands, they use, I guess, variable fork rakes across across mm-hmm. the range. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. not something you're doing. What's What's the philosophy there? Like, are you trying to keep the trail number the same throughout the size range or does it vary? Yeah. On a gravel bike, we can get it to, um, it does vary throughout the size range, but with a 50 millimeter off middle, sorry, a 50, 50 millimeter offset fork and the sort of trail numbers that we want on a gravel bike, we can accomplish that with a 50 without running into um, larger issues of toe overlap, etc. because it is a slacker front end than on a gravel bike or sorry, a road bike or a race bike. Uh, but then on our road bikes, we're doing two offsets on the forks on those. Okay. All right. So, okay. So that's, uh, that changes my question because I was, uh, yeah, I guess from where I was coming from is you do see brands that do the one fork offset and they, they probably have the capability to do multiple fork offsets, but they, they choose mm-hmm. not to. Uh, mm-hmm. And their philosophy is that, you know, that's the handling is, uh, you want the handling variable across the size range. Whereas mm-hmm. other brands end up achieving uh, a single trail figure for an entire size breadth. Um, what's what's number twenty two's philosophy, and and I guess why? Yeah, we do have a bit of a range. Uh, so a smaller bike is going to have typically more trail, and that's just going to give you more stability in a front end on a smaller bike. Uh, you know, we're talking about a few. I would say, off the top of my head, I'd call it about five millimeters difference in the trail number from the smallest size of bike we do in our stock geometry to the largest and that's just to make sure that front end isn't too quick on a smaller bike and the toe overlap doesn't get too extreme um, yeah. and then okay. that typically trails down as it gets to a larger size interesting so it's it's you mentioned toe overlap and it's then also like the wheelbase of the bike smaller bike exactly. smaller wheelbase yeah okay mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Okay. Any other, I guess, elements of the geometry of, say, the drifter that uh, you feels, I guess, somewhat unique or or important to to how that bike rides? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd say we we like a lower bottom bracket, and we like a little more trail on the front end, and a little more stack on a gravel bike versus a road bike. Uh, and that's so you're not fighting the front end if you're on some more gnarly uh, terrain, and a little more stack uh, and a little little shorter reach typically. So it's a little. Uh, weight off of that front end again for sort of dealing with less uh, less predictable um, road terrain um, so you're not getting too beat up chattered around or having to fight to control the front end of the bike that much that's sort of it in a nutshell yeah okay all right uh you spoke about that um i guess the drift is probably your best selling bike uh Mm -hmm. when did that start to i guess take over from I guess more road focused stuff. When did that trend happen? Yeah, I'm gonna say roughly four years ago, mm-hmm. around there maybe. Yeah, it'll be yeah about four years ago or so. I would say we started to see that 
Um, we still do sell a lot of road bikes, but yeah, gravel is still the number one. And then obviously road rim is becoming, you know, fewer and fewer every year. But yeah, I think, you know, the gravel had a lot of push um, from it being sort of, you know, it was conceived of as a new discipline. Um, the marketing got behind that. And I think that also coupled with everybody coming out of this pandemic with our grand travel ventures and all the wonderful experiences we are going to go on in the far distant lands with our bicycles uh gravel bikes really seem to be um you know appealing and romantic in that that aspect you know you're going to go camp for a month and change your life in some remote part of the world and uh, hopefully <laughs> hopefully some people realize that dream unfortunately i'm still stuck behind a computer but maybe one day i'll be able to put a tent on a drifter and take yeah. off for a little while yeah yeah i think uh quite a few people Start, sort out like a couple of bikes over the last two years of these plans to Huge. get on a plane and travel and then probably the yeah. first trip they remembered how much travel actually sucks so um <laughs> more so now <laughs> so. i can't condone that uh <laughs> a couple of bikes suck because we make a lot of them but no we, we definitely try to make it easier by you know with our yeah. our brake decoupler that was really the yeah. genesis behind that we thought if we're going to do a coupler bike we don't want it to be a pain in the ass yeah um, so we're going to make a system that's a lot cleaner and it looks like a normal bike it doesn't look like a travel bike and you can actually split this thing in two correctly not correctly yeah. but in a way that makes it um, easiest way you know which is a relative term and packing a coupler bike to get it in that case yeah cool just just uh just confirm i i meant travel sucks as opposed to travel bikes suck because oh, okay. I'm, I'm actually a fan <laughs> of travel bikes <laughs> okay good <laughs> um right so what what sort of demand do you get for the travel bikes is that like the the coupler equipped bikes is is it mm -hmm. like 20 percent of what you do or is it more or less you know, I would say out of the gravel bike, yeah, it's it's maybe kind of approaching that number. To tell you the okay. truth, I haven't sat down and crunched through the queue to see exactly what the breakdown is, but it's definitely more than we ever expected, um, and it's probably about in that range. You know, it's easier to do now with um, you know SRAM going semi wireless, obviously, or sorry, uh, SRAM going semi wireless. Mm -hmm. around being wireless etc like you can like an, i with my travel bike i i just i was traveling alone i wasn't going down with mike my partner so i took the train and i threw my drifter in a travel case and got on the train so i could work the whole day and it was about an eight hour trip and you know got to the factory uh, or to my hotel and put a bike together so i had a bike there for the, the weeks ago hit some of those nice country roads after the factory or visits in the day and just ride around it was it was great you know definitely definitely gave me the insight as to why it's become so popular. It's, yeah, the freedom of having a luggage-sized bicycle is, is pretty awesome. Mm. I'm, I'm a big fan of your, uh, your, your travel bikes. Like One, because you created the hydraulic decoupler, the, the brake mm. brake, uh, yeah. which uh, you know, up until then, other, you'd have to rely on other systems, and it's, it's pretty cool that you, you took that extra step. But um, mm -hmm. the other is just the the cleanliness of the couplers you use. Can you speak a bit about those couplers? Sure. I have to say a funny anecdote, though. Actually, just as we developed the brake brake, Mike and I were driving back from the factory, listening to your guys' podcast, where you were <laughs> lamenting, why doesn't this exist? Like, hold on, hold on, just wait, it's coming. <laughs> Screaming oh, back funny. at the radio. <laughs> so uh, we were pretty excited when we actually got that put together. But uh, yeah, with the couplers, I think um, the system we're using, um, it's not the, you know, there's Santana have a, a coupler system, which is, pretty similar in how it interlocks. It's sort of like more of a traditional um, 
Like um, it, it, it looks like super fancy, but there's actually a lot of applications in piping and tubing that use a similar interlock, which I kind of came into uh, exposure to sort of in the architectural days. So yeah, there's actually some pretty rudimentary um, uh, uh, tubing and coupling that uses a similar, I can't remember exactly what the technical name of the joint is, uh, but it uses that sort of interlock in those teeth. This one's maybe it's biting in another direction. So it's working, not just, um, you know, in this called the Y axis, but also the X. So it's a little more sophisticated than that, but it's nothing that's totally novel. I think maybe the, the application uh, and the way we're doing it is on a bike, but um, yeah, it just seems for us to sort of really fit our desire to keep honing things and make things tighter and cleaner yeah. um, as opposed to a big knuckle joint on it. Uh, you know, it just keeps things seamless and you can yeah. barely notice it. Um, yes. Uh, yeah. You know, a lot of people use it as their everyday bike and actually have a, a friend of my riding group who has one and I, you know, I always forget like, Oh yeah, that's one of our coupler bikes. Yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely super stealthy as opposed to like, I guess when you normally think of a coupler bike, you're thinking of like, a Richie breakaway, which is pretty clean looking, but mm -hmm. um, but yeah, otherwise you think of like SNS couplers, which yeah, as you say, have like a quite a bulgier aesthetic to them. So it's uh, mm -hmm. it's definitely pretty cool that that travel bikes can uh, look exactly like a regular bike, and that you yeah, really need it, to know where to look to to know it's not right. And the weight penalty um, is significantly reduced. Not that we're weight obsessive, but I think uh, our couplers versus a traditional option like the SNS, I think we're at about um, a quarter or a third of the weight, if I recall correctly. Mm -hmm. Okay. And is there any change in ride quality when you add a coupler into the into the tube? No, like it's that? yeah, no, it's undetectable. Um, no, we haven't had any issues of any creaking or squeaking, and there's quite a few of these out on the road now that've been put to their paces all over the world. Um, yeah, it rides like a monolithic frame interesting okay all right we spoke a bit about demand and i guess increase in demand for gravel bikes during covid uh did you mm -hmm. see any other changes to the business during that time during the last two years <laughs> you, want, you want to do another podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean obviously our industry got shook uh far harder than any of us expected yeah um you know we were we were made to close our factory being in new york and you know, wanted to keep all of our staff on. So we ran a promotion, which we never thought we'd do. And we thought that would just kind of maybe drag us through just good enough to pay the bills and keep everybody uh, um, hanging in there during this time. But, you know, the sales then exploded with this uptick in cycling. So uh, we were sort of inundated, probably the busiest we've ever been. Um, we control most of our supply chain for our small parts and the components that go into our bikes, you know, including the forks, et cetera. So we didn't see some of the issues that a lot of other companies did, which is really fortunate. Um, but of course with group sets, that's where things were different. Uh, you know, that, uh, that um, famine, I guess, or those delays and in, in, in components were sort of a bit of a, uh, probably the biggest sticking point. Um, but yeah, luckily we were able to weather things pretty well. Okay. How are things looking now? Are things, are you seeing a slowdown now in demand or like, are you kind of catching up on your, your, your wait times? Yeah, and I would say we'd be able to catch up a bit. Yeah. We're able to sort of breathe. We're super well stocked in components now. Um, so that stress is out of the way. Um, 
and it really gave us time to kind of get this stuff out. Like we've had a few projects we we're working on. There's another thing that's, you know, the next project we're working on, which kind of keeps getting delayed because of COVID and uh, et cetera. But to get this fully internal cockpit together and out now, um, I think this will be a pretty big game changer for us. I think maybe the other thing we didn't talk about is it uses a unique head tube as well. And I think we just got our first big batch of those who so are ready to rock on that. It's supposed to using like an extraneous headset cup. Um, so yeah, we're pretty much good to go on building these, which we're really excited about, um, as well as the introduction of, uh, a finish up. Yeah. It's yeah, called I was an, upgrade, ask about an update. That. Yeah. 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 What are you offering Cerakote now? That's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a booth in house and we've been experimenting over the last year or so with different, different systems. Cerakote was always our number one choice just because it seems so appealing that it's, you know, it's a ceramic coating. It's super durable. Um, it's about one twentieth of the weight of paint and it doesn't need a clear coat. So we're sort of known for our anodized finishes on our bike. The problem is that's not a dye based process. There's no pigment in titanium anodizing. It's all how light refracts off the surface. So as soon as you put clear coat on that, if you're integrating paint into the design finish, um, it changes the way it looks, you know, it loses a lot of its luster, colors sort of change, um, shades, etc. So that really wasn't working for us. Um, you can always stop the paint before the anodizing, but then you're left with like a hard clear coat edge. And that can be pretty problematic just for upkeep aesthetics. It's not so great. And then for instance, on a coupler bike, if we were to use that, you'd have, you know, this hard clear coat edge at uh, where you apply your install your coupler back so it's going to get shipped pretty easily and pretty readily so um yeah we went to Cerakote where it's super thin the transition between anodizing and the Cerakote is you know hardly noticeable um the durability is great no clear coat uh, yeah just it's 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 finicky, it's finicky uh, compared yes. to paint it's less forgiving because yeah. it's just so thin it shows everything even the difference between like uh a brushed titanium finish and a bead blast titanium finish, which is, you know, indistinguishable to measure. That'll actually show up underneath the Cerakote. So the amount of prep work is, um, it's, it's pretty, pretty finicky and, uh, you know, not the easiest to, to prep for, but we have such an awesome finishing team. They're able to, to do it. So we're super excited with how it's turned out. When I, when I think of Cerakote, I think of like single color palette uh like just just generally like a matte finish just you know it might be gray or something like that are you are you playing at all with multiple colors of Cerakote at all or is that uh yeah we're using like um Cerakote in mostly the metallic shapes that they use and then we're combining that with like a bead blasted and a polished um titanium um titanium so that's so what we had at the unfortunately unfortunately showing a tube isn't isn't the best podcast material so i'm a, i'm the only one getting to enjoy I, this I, I, this is just but, for um, you yeah <laughs> yeah but uh that looked like quite like a very rich anodizing from from where i'm sitting mm -hmm. um so that's quite interesting it's not it's not something i'd normally think of when uh when sarah coates mentioned so it's uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh this is a very cool finish 
Yeah, some of the colors that we've developed now, uh, I mean, obviously, for those people that don't know, it's a, it's a, it's a coating that kind of found its way into, like, military um, application. So it's very utilitarian, but I think they started to see growth in other sectors, uh, automotive, etc. So they're actually getting into some pretty interesting stuff where a lot of the colors we are using have a bit of a metallic flake in it. So it gives it more of a luster. It's not that sort of flat coloration, which really pairs nicely with the sort of two-tone uh, bead blasted and brushed anodizing we're pairing it with. Uh, it's sort of like a nice transition between the uh, reflectivity of these materials. And they also have some that are sort of do a bit of a color shift now as well, which is pretty interesting. Um, yeah, so it's it's definitely more um, rich and vibrant than um, than how it started as a as a surface coating. You you mentioned it's fiddly. I I feel like it's this the type of finish that I I think I've seen grown men cry over trying to achieve. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's yeah. What would what what happens to the the price of the bike with with a Cerakote finish like that? The, are we talking about a more expensive finish versus paint and versus anodizing or? Yeah. Well, we aren't doing any paint work in house. We're just going to be offering sort of our what we always called our raw, which is a we don't ever use decals. We've always um, used sort of brushed and blasted uh, graphics, you know, things that are sort of like intrinsic to the frame. Um, and then doing that and replacing the brush polish with anodizing, which we've done traditionally. And then these combinations of two tone anodizing and Cerakote are probably running around the $1,500 mark. So, okay. um, you know, pretty comparable to a simple paint job gotcha. uh, from, okay. from that other companies are offering. I think that's sort of a baseline for um, a paint that's not just simply uh, one tone. So we're combining these finishes, the Cerakote with the anodizing and brush blasted raw tie all in one bike and one finish option. And that anodizing is also done in house, is it? yeah that's correct yeah we yeah, do all of our okay. finish work in house yeah yeah well yeah. okay busy place um <laughs> i guess speaking of those finishes i mean that's that's certainly one one area where i guess you differentiate yourself but mm-hmm. how you know if, if someone were riding along and saw a, a raw titanium or just a titanium bike whiz past them mm-hmm. i mean how would they what sort of details would tell them that it's it's one of your bikes that's a great question. And I think that's something we're really sort of proud about that. Like at number 22 is intrinsically a number 22. Um, you know, we we're always honing things. Like I think we posted something up recently on like the third or fourth iteration of our break bridge that we've done where we've, you know, like machined out the backs, so we saved some weight from there and like made a, what we feel is like a nice tighter design, et cetera. But, you know, it's always been our thing of, is bringing as many things under our control as possible. So, you know, our, if I started from the front of the back bike to the back, like the forks are unique to us. Um, the headsets in this system, uh, are unique to us. Uh, the head tubes we have machined for ourselves, even our tubing, which you wouldn't be able to tell, but is, you know, manufactured for us to our spec. Our seat post collar is unique to us. We have our T47 bottom bracket shells made for us as we like a little thicker wall thickness, which just helps with uh, heat control uh, that much better. Um, our seat post is our own, our seat mask topper, even the head of our seat post now we're 3D printing and you know, uniquely 22, um, the brake bridge um, and the dropouts. Uh, those are all things that are, you know, really under our control and unique to what we do. So. 
yeah, if you stick uh, one of our, our bikes next to some others who have, you know, done great jobs, like the great bikes and everything, but a lot of them are assembled from a kit of parts that's really available. I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that are happening on our bikes that are, you know, quite unique to what we're doing. And, you know, it's, it's proud of, we're super proud of that. It's no small undertaking to control that sort of supply chain and design development, et cetera, for a company of our size. But uh, I think we wouldn't be the same company if we, if we weren't doing that. Yeah, for sure. And as far as like aesthetic flourishes go, you've got the little, uh, the little bit in the, the 3d printed bit in your fork now um that that sort of is pretty unique and also i think that brake bridge it's it's got uh how would you describe that shape it's uh it's a narrow yeah so almost yeah yeah we have a it's sort of a diamond is sort of our oh, okay. logo yep. um and actually that brake bridge is derived by just like taking the geometry of that shape and mm-hmm. extruding that so <laughs> doing that in an architectural program and good old autocad where if i took the lines of that and just extended them across they make sort of a perfect road bridge because you know oh, cool. it kind of peaks up in the center so you get your max tire clearance and then bites down at the seat stays at the lowest possible point for you know best place for the create a rigid connection as you want on a brake bridge so yeah yeah uh i didn't have this on my list of questions but why a brake bridge on a disc brake road bike um or on a disc brake bike i mean you're seeing like if you look at carbon um most most carbon disc brake bikes have sort of ditched having a a brake a bridge between the 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 seat stays um Mm -hmm. why do you do it yeah we still do it because i I couldn't speak to why they don't on the carbon ones but i assume it's because a lot of them are dropping their stays to where they're that much shorter and connecting to the seat tube at a point that's you know rigid enough and that shorter span um whereas we're using sort of a we like sort of a classic look on most of our bikes where the uh seat stays are connecting um at the top of the top tube so it's a much longer um length um for that tubing to span and so we put the bridge in there for that extra bit of rigidity and it also allows us the option to run a uh, fender mount on the back of that too as we run a a little hidden fender fender mount on the back of that too nice. which is an option that comes standard on our gravel bikes they're all ready to go for fenders and again like really hidden ways like the fender mounts on that fork are taking off the um like back side of the blade as opposed to the side um on the new dropouts it's just a little um inset screw that's a little scrub screw that you would remove to install the fender mounts etc yeah cool okay uh spoke about bringing cerakote in-house that you've Mm-hmm. been using that for the last like playing with that for the last year or so uh i'm keen you you mentioned that you're always working on new things i'm i'm keen without giving away too much i'm keen to know whether you can tell us uh what you're looking to bring in house next like what's sure. what's the next thing that's uh taken up a corner somewhere in the workshop yeah so it's sort of been my i guess pet project definitely something i've really been pushing for and we you know we started and stopped the pandemic but i think you know as we mentioned we always like to sit toe-to-toe with the carbon fiber bikes you know which sort of dominate the industry we don't want to be seen as that we're you know missing anything that they offer and i think the thing that titanium has yet to really nail down is aerodynamics so um we're working with a few people um on working out uh, an aerodynamic solution to a titanium bike which would be pretty unique. So in terms of in-house, we're working on the design in-house for sure with some consulting and actual aero performance. 
on that and what those tubes would look like. Um, obviously, that's going to utilize some 3D printing and also looking at using um, ways of forming tubing using uh, hydroforming, which would be pretty novel as well. Yeah, so as opposed to just, you know, linking some circular tubes together with what might look like an arrow logger junction, um, mm -hmm. you know, seeing that all the way through on all all components of that frame. Very intriguing. Uh, that was that was a question I, I I wanted to ask, which is uh, with the three D titanium printing. Like, is that is that something you see yourselves using more of? I mean, you kind of just answered that, but mm -hmm. uh, like, wh where's the limitation that you see for that for that technology? Good question. Yeah, I think right now the limitation is cost. It's yeah. you know it's an extremely expensive process still. Um, so. <laughs> I'm not sure if it'll ever make sense. Like, I know, like, I think the, the bike that Pinarello just uh, showed the world mm -hmm. used 3D printing for the tubing as well. But I don't think it makes sense necessarily for um, the tubing to be that way, just because, you know, a tube does functionally what it should um, in terms of its ride characteristics, lightweight, et cetera. So as long as we can form that into the shape we need to, and that's what we're working on doing with hydroforming, um, then yeah i think we can do everything else with 3d printing and make a really pretty amazing seamless product yeah okay and and that technology i mean it's got it's it's moving pretty quickly there was an incident at the olympics right. a couple of years ago with the australian mm -hmm. team where a stem mm -hmm. broke um mm -hmm. are you are you are there any measures being taken from a safety point of view or from a quality control for point sure. of view i mean obviously uh for sure for sure it's a it's an expensive mistake to make for you to mm -hmm. weld <laughs> weld a, a faulty piece into a frame so i'm, I'm keen to understand yeah. what what that looks like yeah and i think if, as we've come to realize that the you know the the fault in that piece was um more you know certain parties involved wanting to fly too close to the sun even with the warnings at hand from the people that uh, were behind that so you yeah know, it's definitely an icarus moment but uh yeah like the stem we're having it fully uh fully tested as you would with any other stem that's going into uh, into production uh so we're almost there i should mention that we're actually working with uh prototypo works uh who mm. are down there to do a um, a custom array of the best uh, the best bidden cage bolts yeah, and they'll be the best uh, 3D printed tie stem bolts as well. So they're doing a whole, they're doing all the hardware okay. for us on this on this system and the okay. cage bolts, etc. They've been awesome to work with. So they are sending us. Um, unfortunately, it didn't quite happen for Philly, but they're sending us a full array of those to test with the stem as well. So all the hardware okay. and the stem will be tested. Yeah. All of our 3D printed parts are also heat treated, um, so which is super significant. Like it's. You can 3D print something, but there's, you know, before there was always kind of concerns like, oh, it's not going to be fully, there's always going to be gaps or imperfections within that material, which could be, um, you know, weak points, which is what a lot of armchair engineers would say, but uh, they're actually heat treated. So where Silka is located in Indianapolis, they're by the Rolls-Royce jet engine factory and a few other um, military factories that are all sort of working together to combine their knowledge on this uh, 3D titanium printing. So some pretty amazing brains that work on this and uh, all the products actually heat treated at the Rolls Royce jet engine factory. Oh, wow. So this heat, okay. yeah, pretty cool. Hey? Yeah. So 
Um, the heat treatment actually um, helped to solidify the part and remove any voids, and it makes it 99.5% um, as solid as a actual billet of traditional titanium. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. And also for fatigue like life, it increases fatigue, uh, sorry, fatigue length by about 75%, if I recall from the white paper. Okay. So yeah, it really right. doesn't, it's, yeah, we wouldn't do it any other way without uh, ensuring all those get heat treated afterwards. Wow. What okay. we're finding though, is it makes the material just so strong that we actually have to finish, do the finish, aesthetic finish work and, you know, post reading, et cetera, that we want to do on these 3D printed parts before it gets heat treated because it's just indestructible like and it right. just becomes incredibly strong after that heat treatment so wow. okay. we're actually having to do that finish work and then send it back to silica to roll into the next heat treatment cycles oh wow okay all right mm -hmm. and uh obviously there'll be a, a matching computer mount no doubts <laughs> yeah and um, one of the bikes at philly there's the matching computer mount that just got printed just in time yeah yeah very cool all right uh last last thing i want to talk about uh philly bike shows just happened there's a new show coming out next year, uh, May. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Is that something you plan to attend? Definitely, yeah. Um, you know, we were obviously all lamented that NABs didn't happen again this year. Um, it is what it is. Uh, but yeah, it sounds like, uh, you know, from our talks with some people that were involved in NABs as well, that they are actually kind of moving over to team up with Made. So we'll definitely be there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's really going to be great to have another show uh, to promote the to promote the industry I and mean, like for instance nabs was i think for pretty much every small builder like us that was our biggest um uh biggest source of exposure uh you know having all the press come to that the number of eyes that came out there like it was it's really yeah. important so to know yeah. that's still happening for the community is, is just amazing yeah we're really looking forward to it yeah, and same cool. philly like philly's awesome and just to see them come back after these uh Yes. Tough times for trade shows yep. is, is awesome. People that yep. organize it are great. It's definitely a really positive vibe, one big family kind of vibe at Philly, which is really cool. Oh, that's cool. That's what you want for the scene. Um, mm -hmm. With with Mate, I guess they're taking a slightly different approach with going outdoors. And one of the things mm -hmm. they've they've mentioned as a benefit to that is is the ability to test ride bikes. Right. Um, that's something we we spoke about on a previous Nerd Alert podcast, and um, to be honest, we basically just spoke crap about test the need to test ride custom bikes. But I'm keen <laughs> to get uh, get uh, an actual take on it. Um, mm -hmm. Do you do you get requests from customers for such a thing? Do you think it's important? What's where's your stance on that? Yeah, it's that's interesting. Uh, we've never participated in one of the shows that offers that sort of demo fleet program. So I can't really speak to how successful it would be, um, you know, in that sort of short spin around that that would offer. We definitely do have people ask, um, you know, where can I ride your bikes? So um, that's why we do have a dealer network where we and we try to have a dealer have a bike on the floor that people can take out and ride. It seems like there's a almost, it's, it's funny that uh, with metal handmade bikes, people really want to see it in person before they buy it. Yet they trust that the carbon fiber bike is going to be of a certain quality, et cetera. It's, it's sort of a really funny um, mm. disposition, but it's definitely <laughs> pretty, pretty um, uh, common. Um, so we do have some shops that show our bikes in person. If people want to check them out, we don't have a demo program at our factory. Our product factories are now is purely production. 
Um, but all that said, most people do proceed without um, a test ride. And we have yet to have a, <laughs> you've yet to have one sent back, whether sure. that's stock or custom geometry. So yeah, yeah, it's not something I have enough experience to really speak to on how beneficial it would be. But uh, I'll yeah. listen to your guys' podcast and see why you don't like it. <laughs> uh, oh, it's not that we didn't like it. I, th- I think we'll just... Uh... Yeah, no, no real strong opinions. I just remember what we said wasn't uh, wasn't uh, worth people's time. Um, but <laughs> it's, uh, I'm, I'm, yeah. I guess from my point, I, I'm, I'm, I'm keen to understand. Like maybe you haven't thought about it, but like you know, if the opportunity was there, like you obviously you're going to be there. You're going to be displaying bikes. Is it mm-hmm. you know? Are you going to bring bikes that can be ridden, or is it you just would rather be there and talk about them and show them? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think the explanation of like what goes into the bikes is pretty important. But that said, at the end of the day, if it's not a bike you enjoy riding, then all the technology that goes into it um, is sort of moot, excuse the pun. But if you don't actually, you know, enjoy the bike. So, yeah, it's interesting. That might be, it might be our first time to maybe give that a go and see what people think. Of course, like how many do you bring then? Like, you know, is a is somebody's impression going to be compromised by the fact that they're on a 54 when they should exactly. be on a 60 and yes, you know, oh, this, exactly. this bike doesn't handle well, or yeah. it's, uh, I just, it doesn't feel right to me. It's right. It's not so the tire I pressure think, they used to. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Or they don't like, they don't like, uh, whatever one of the group sets versus the other and, yeah. you know, the shifting on this bike sucks or whatever <laughs> they might say, which is like unrelated to what we're doing. So yeah, yeah sure. that would be kind of hard when you just open up that, absolute realm of um variables compared to what somebody is used to riding that can be can be an interesting uh, can of worms yeah cool all right well that's uh feels like a pretty good place to to wrap things up uh, bryce thank you very very much for the time uh yeah, if people are keen to know more about number 22 where should they head yeah so our website is 22 the number 22 bicycles.com or we're on instagram at 22 bikes that's a wrap on this week's nerd alert podcast i have to admit i found myself on number 22's website a whole lot since recording this one Uh uh-oh If you like this episode, then please consider sharing it with a friend who may enjoy it too. And as always, the Nerd Alert podcast is brought to you by Cycling Tips' subscription model, Velo Club. If you're not already a member, then please do consider supporting us by joining. Till next week, cheers.